Hello, Chris. Chris Tridabaugh from Hazeltine National Golf Club. Welcome to ATC Office Hours. Uh, thanks for having me again, Micah. Uh, good evening to you. And uh, yeah, good morning here. We're having a bit of a snowstorm. Oh, oh my. We, we are not having a snowstorm. I planted <laughs> some grass in a friend's lawn. I planted two different kinds of grass in a friend's lawn today. Nice. And they didn't quite have the soil prepared uh, when I arrived there with the grass. So I did some midday in the tropical sun uh digging and weed removal and hoeing and planting and uh worked up quite a quite a sweat i'd imagine so, so yeah um so i asked you if you could join office hours today because you've been posting a few new blogs and you don't blog nearly as much as you used to uh, back especially when you, you were at northland i recall that you blogged more frequently and yep. what i find when you post blog posts now and it might be one a year four a year uh mm -hmm. five a year something like that it it seems to be something that's uh something that you've thought about quite a bit something that you might have written a draft of and then edited and then finally you're ready to publish it and i'm so intrigued about the topic of what you're writing about yeah. now and um, I just wonder uh, if you can, you can maybe say what prompted you to write about, I guess, playability and the way we manage putting greens uh, mm -hmm. and the way that we evaluate the quality of the surfaces. Um, yep. Could you just say a little bit about what sure. this series is about? Sure. Yeah, I, I, your, your description of my blogging is quite accurate. I sometimes go back to the, the use the Northland um, blog that I wrote as a as a reference for things and i go back and sometimes i'll just go down this rabbit hole of reading things that i wrote back then and some of it I've, i have this very clear memory of having written it um and then some of the things i, I look i read and i'm just like oh man, i have i had no recollection of writing that particular post but i'm always amazed at how prolific i was and i i'm not really sure why that is i don't know if it was just you know <clears throat> a smaller club um and i felt like i had more time to do it um our children were younger at that time where we didn't have any um, or we had one um, and now we have three. And so I think that's a part of it too. And I think it's just um, changing the way that I work. You know, I sort of, when I leave here uh, in the evening, I, I um, shut, the, shut it off and I don't really do a lot of that kind of stuff at home anymore. And that was a, in large part, I did a lot of that writing at home after work and I just don't do that anymore. So anyway, um, you know, on this topic, it's it's something you and I have discussed um, many times over the years in many different venues, live and, uh, you know, in person and virtually. And I just have felt, and as you said, I've been kind of writing this post, these or this series of posts or putting these ideas down for some time, probably more than a year, I think I've had the this sort of document going. And, you know, I have... Um, since the Ryder Cup in 2016, tried to strive for this. Um, how do we present those types of conditions to our members on the most days possible during the course of the year? Um, one, I think, and I and I don't think this is an in. I don't think this is a commentary from a membership who uh, a championship hosting membership that is odd. 
Um, but our our members would would often say, "Boy, it's the course is really great for um, these events, but we would really like to kind of have a piece of that too and get to play in those kind of conditions on a regular basis." And it's easy as a person who manages turf to sort of scoff at that idea and say, "Well, um, you you uh, we we obviously can't produce those kind of conditions all the time, but." starting with the 2017 season I, I started to think well what if we could and and or why can't we and what what will we need to do in order to do that and so that sort of led this progression of of thinking and um and m changing the way that we're managing the surfaces to to get to the point where we are are trying to um produce a rider cup like surface uh for as many possible days during the course of the year as we can um and i think we found some real success and it's really in 2020 it was a pandemic year but we really found some some great um saw some great things on our putting surfaces in 2020 as we finally started to sort of crystallize all these things and, and put them all together and then in 2021 we really um got to that point and, and data has been a big part of it um and in confirming that that what we're doing is getting the kind of results that we're we're hoping to get that's that's what the blog posts are showing i i wonder how many it's going to be i i i think it's three now three posts in this series so far and it was really yeah. intriguing the first one you posted i thought i'm like did he well you put a a poll up you put up two pictures and you said, is this a uh, disruption? And the, the pictures were, one was a, a verticut grain with clippings yet to be swept off or yet right. to be mowed off. Right. And the other one was a, looked like it had maybe a solid tined with a, a light to medium top dressing over it. Yep. And, and then you, you said, okay, here's my first post was was that the you said here's the first post and by the way yeah. here's a, a quiz to accompany it or a yeah. a, a, poll. a poll and i thought yeah. i thought well he's distracting everybody from reading his writing what's going on with that but then it turned out the the answers to that were totally different than what i expected but you had told me you anticipated that the answers would be um kind of along the lines that they yeah. came back as yeah I think I think what that poll it's not like I was trying to manipulate the conversation but I think what that poll highlighted is the idea that as superintendents we have in our mind um an idea of what um what practices are disrupted to the surface so if we go in and verticut like that and I will say that um that picture was an, an obviously very egregious example of, of verticutting um, and I had gone out and done that. That was a few years ago, maybe the, the August of 2018, if I recall. And I, I had some greens that, that had some decline in the summer, which is a part of this whole discussion as to why that I feel now that decline was coming. We were seeing that at that time, but I, I wanted to create a bit of a seed bed when we did our airification in August. So that was the, the way that we did it. And, um, yeah, a double verticut and and that picture is without a cleanup so clearly like you're not gonna nobody's gonna put on that kind of um 
setup. But but everybody will will say that that's some kind of surface disruption. But let um, me let me let me bring up yeah. the the uh, blog. Is that in the second post? Did you put a, a picture that was of that? In the, that picture was in the first post. It was in the first post. Okay. Is that disruption? So the picture, because some of the, some people are going to be watching this, and some people will be listening. So we'll show the picture for those watching it, and you can then uh, yeah D give a descriptive. I mean, so it, it's it's obvious. You know, yeah, most people who are watching this would um, would. Uh, and you know, just so like you talk about like a, an actor doing their own stunts, just so that everybody knows, I, I use my own pictures. Here's <laughs> yeah, the night. Um, nice. Um, um, it's it's a very like disruptive example of verticutting, and and right through the middle, kind of at a, a, a let's say a, an eleven o'clock to a two o'clock or eleven o'clock to three o'clock type of angle there's a, a darker spot that was kind of the spots I was aiming at to open up a little bit to get some seed, um, to, to get some seed into. And it, you know, it may or may, may or may not have worked, but, but <clears throat> it was a perfect picture to say, is this a disruptive, is this a disruptive practice on your putting greens? If you did this to your greens, would your golfers feel like, oh, that's something that's, um, we don't want to see. And I think the answer to that is, is obviously yes. And the poll bared that out. So, yeah. So then, so the poll was like 90 some percent maybe said that that was disruption. I believe um, that was, yeah, or, I believe that was the, the number I hear. I probably, I can look at it quickly. Should we look at the second photo, which is 86% of 270 votes said that that was disruption. That first one with the verticut. Yep, correct. Okay. And then this next one, this next one, I thought you're showing that. To me, that's totally disruption. It's, uh, there's, there's visible holes on the green and there is visible sand on the green. So yep. to me, if there's visible sand, visible holes, it's disruption. But you, you had some intuition that some people would answer it's not. And, uh, Tell me about well, that. Yeah, so I, I mean, I think that that this is sort of what we've um, we've gotten as turf managers. We've gotten used to doing this type of practice on a fairly regular basis. And for those who will be listening to this, I'll describe it. It is kind of as as you, and, and you described it a little bit, Micah. But it's a it's a surface of a green with a um, <clears throat> with um, small holes. I don't recall the size of the holes that we did on this particular instance. I think it was. Uh, it was slightly larger than what would be considered a needle tine. Um, and then mm -hmm. it's a fairly large amount of sand. I would not call this a dusting. I would call this a, um, a medium kind of amount of sand. And, you know, I think this is the type of thing that we do um, maybe with fairly regular, um, regular, you know, we do this fairly regularly as superintendents and, and kind of, you know, just say, this is part of what we need to do to, to create the surfaces that we have. And we don't think of it as a disruptive practice, but I, I, I and the point of kind of the blog posts is trying to, 
change our thinking a little bit as I've sort of done over the last couple of years to look at this from a, a member or golfer standpoint and think, well, what is this? Is this as big a deal to, it's not a big deal to us. Is it a big deal to them? And I think the answer to that is yes. Um, <clears throat> the poll that I put up with a very similar number of votes had, it was almost 50, 50, 50 said yes, 50 said no. Now I have no idea who, what the breakdown is and it would be interesting to, call out some of the, the people who voted on that and see if, you know, golfers or superintendents who said what, who answered mm -hmm. how. It's, uh, but I, I think that's the sort of the crux. This, these two pictures are sort of the crux of the, the posts in that are we doing practices? Have we gotten to the point where we're doing these practices that we as superintendents think are no big deal? But golfers, as they get it time after time after time, are saying, wait a minute, that's, that's, a, big, that's a big deal. You know, what yeah. you just did there is a big deal. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think it's, it's fascinating. If, if anybody hasn't read these posts yet, you can find them on Chris's blog, uh, at the, the address there is ct turfmediumcom That's where you can find these posts. They're on Chris's blog, they're the most recent posts. And I see we have some people joining us live from all over the world. If you want to ask any questions or some comments uh, in the chat, I, I know if you're watching on YouTube or on Facebook or on LinkedIn, I think all of the messages that you send or the, the chat should show up here so Chris and I can see it. Can you see the, the chat messages, Chris, where we have people from... Yep. Uh, Randy from Bulgaria, Ryan from Australia, a LinkedIn user saying greetings from Cambodia, and we've got Neville saying hello from Laos. So um, we've we've got people from what's that's uh, three continents already. You're on a fourth, so that's that's wonderful. And I know a lot of people watching would be uh, turfgrass managers and would obviously be have some expertise and opinions about these. So we're happy to have a discussion about this if anybody wants to send a few questions our, our way. All right, yeah, Jorge, I, regards from Spain. I should say another, add another continent. Uh, I should say too, I guess Bulgaria is in, is in Europe. Um, yeah. um, I should say too, you know, this is in on bent grass in a, in a, a northern um, North America climate where we have winter. Um, so, I can't. I'm. I can't speak to people who are managing ultra dwarf Bermuda grass. Um, you know, I would hope somebody would that is managing an ultra dwarf would 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 this would allow them to think sort of critically about what they're doing. But I don't want to say that this is a very a prescriptive thing that's going to work for everybody. But hopefully, you know, um, it will cause people to think. So, yeah, it's, and and I think the way that it's leading. Um, as we're kind of bouncing around here uh, because I've read all the blog posts. Um, so I also want to talk about where this might be leading, but yeah. uh, I also uh, want to review some of the things that, that you've talked about in the blog posts. Um, and I think by, by keeping track of the work that's done and then also by measuring what the results are, which you've gotten to some of the data in, in your most recent post, I think it provides a framework that works for any grass to mm -hmm. 
uh, find out which practices are, are really necessary and what what effect yeah. they're having. So we'll talk about some of that, some of the tools that that you're making use of. And I think the post you put up uh, yesterday, my time, no, or maybe early morning, my time yesterday, your yep, time. That would be right. I did it um, right, right before I left work yesterday. That was that was cool to see. Okay, that I see a question or a comment from Eric Johnson. He says, <clears throat> in my mind, timing of these practices would ideally occur during optimal GP. By that, he means temperature-based growth potential, which Dr. Larry Stoll and I talked about last week on another office hours. He said that timing would be during optimal GP for shorter recovery time downside is that optimal gp is the peak golf season yeah. that's the rub exactly yeah so yeah i i've talked with you about I, i've talked about this with you chris um where i used to go do consulting in japan when i i'd recently finished my phd i'd been a golf course superintendent before um and then i went back to grad school and studied and got a PhD. And then I started the Asian Turfgrass Center and some companies hired me to provide advice. And I was providing advice about the amount of coring, core airification and top dressing to do. And I gave this advice about uh, just do it during the times when the grass can recover. And it's easy to say to just yeah. do that. But uh, so many people were saying they can't possibly there are certain times in the year where they're not able to disrupt the greens. And I've paid attention. I've tried to pay attention to what my advice has been. And I've tried to pay attention to how the grass has performed year after year. And I've tried to pay attention to the work that people have done. And as I've done that, I've changed what my advice has been because people were not following my advice, still getting good results and specifically with putting less sand doing less disruption than I had been recommending. And so Eric is exactly right with this comment that ideally when you're doing the disruption, you do it when the grass can recover, but an even, uh, an even more fundamental or an even more basic question is, um, how much of these disruptive practices and disturbance of the surface is required and yep. and that's kind of i think where you're going with this because you're measuring what the surface performance has been yep yep yeah um without spoiling future blog posts um, um <laughs> there there is um i think that that's the idea you want to do these things when the grass is growing best i, I had a discussion with a member last year after a particularly frustrating August aerification. Um, and we do verify at the beginning of August for exactly for the reason that Eric mentioned in that we're, we're looking to, to do it when we're, when we can recover the quickest. Um, and that was, we've done that ever since I've been here and that took all sorts of different kinds of verification into, into mind. And what we do now is generally, um, very much, um, sort of non-disruptive. Now we had it, a little bit of um, difficulty with that this summer, but but my my point 
to this member was, I think this is the right time to do it because if we moved any kind of a practice to October, essentially the grass is almost not growing in Minnesota at that time. And now you're, you're not going to heal. So you're going to go into winter, not heal. There are all sorts of reasons that a turf manager is going to understand. Um, but if we're going to do a our, our big airification in, in August, I think, what we need to then concentrate on. And again, this is part of the whole thinking of, the, of this, the way that I've started to manage our turf is, again, what you just said, how many times are we are we doing something to the grass? If I can say we're gonna do it at August, uh, the beginning of August, and for two weeks, the greens are not gonna be ideal, but at the end of those two weeks, they're gonna be great. I think a lot of people can, can um, they can um, deal with that. You know, they can say, okay, I'm gonna schedule, Maybe I'll schedule a golf trip, a family vacation. Uh, and I'm thinking about the way that our members think about golf. A golf trip, a family vacation. In, in Minnesota in August, it's been traditional that a lot of people take family vacations in August because sports, summer sports sort of end at the end of July. There's a break before school starts and then people have a lot of time to, to go and, and take these vacations. So we do it then. People can plan for it, go do other things. Um, and then but, but if you're doing things um, that we consider as superintendents, non so light, frequent top dressing and needle tining in between, and you're doing that all throughout the season, it's hard for people to plan for. And we might think that it's not disrupting the surface, but I can, I can almost assure you when a golfer comes out and sees that something like that has been done, even if it's barely perceptible, that they're in their mind, they're thinking, oh, this is, this is not ideal. Um, I'm not playing on a, on a, on a green and, and in our, you know, in the way that we think about it, I'm not playing on a green that would have hosted a Ryder cup. And um, isn't that what the second post was about? So the first post was, is that disruption? Right. And then the second post was, are they right? Can I, can I bring that one up and we'll have a look at that? Yep. yep. And I, I love the way that you started this. Uh, just when they were getting good, he ruined them again. And that's something that I think everybody's heard. And you described how you changed as a rookie superintendent or even uh, from, from when you were just working on golf course maintenance staffs and as an assistant. Yeah. Um, yeah. to where you are now. Can you describe that journey a little bit? Right. So, so, I mean, when I was on the crew and I was getting going in, in, um, in, in golf, I thought that these things were really cool because it was a, di it was a, a disruption. <laughs> it's a disruption from the normal, uh, the normal day-to-day -day activity that we were doing on the golf course. So, you know, if every day was setting up the course and mowing, various areas all of a sudden you're pulling out these machines that are kind of stored in the back corner of the shop and you're you're pulling these cores and this dirt is coming up onto the green and it's just you know really in that sense when you're just getting getting starting to do this it's it's really cool it's a cool process and you know to take this putting surface that performs so well and you pull these cores out and you dump this soil all over the top of the green and you just you know, you're sort of like, wow, this is this is some part of like making these surfaces ideal. And so that was the way that I thought about these types of practices as I came into being a superintendent. And then when you become a superintendent, now the, the, 
the burden of expectation, you bear that responsibility every day. And so I just, I see John Dempsey here in the chat says, as a former superintendent in a private club, there's huge pressure, um, RE, the timing for carrying out any disturbance procedures. And I totally agree. As a superintendent, you get to the point where now it's not just, these are fun and, and cool and different types of practices to do, but now it's something that you have to bear the responsibility of, of healing from them, of how quickly that happens, of how, how long the course is out of play and suddenly they're not so cool anymore. So, but, but at the same time, you, you think you're pretty sure because you've grown up learning this school taught you and your work experience has taught you that these things are necessary. So you're going to defend the need to do these things um, because you're concerned that if you don't do them, you're going to have some negative impact. The course is going to, is going to decline and you're, you're not going to see, the course playing the way that it should. So, you know, a member comes and says, hey, just when they're a course, just when they're getting good, he ruined them. And yeah, we've all heard that before. Um, and then, you know, I have myself made the comment, well, we're just making them better for tomorrow. And if we don't do this, you know, you're not going to get the product you like consistently over the course of the whole season. But if you think about that, and if we're doing other things in between, if we're doing some kind of light verticutting or light frequent top dressing or needle tining, all of these things that we think as superintendents or turf managers are no big deal. The golfers, I, I can assure you, they think that's a big deal. They're seeing that happening. And if you say, well, we got to do this big verification in name your time after Labor Day or beginning of August, because otherwise, of course, we're just making it better for tomorrow. And then tomorrow comes and there's sand on the green again, and there's holes in the green again, and there's verticutting lines on the green again. Um, you know, imagine how a golfer feels when you tell them that you tell them it's better for tomorrow, and then tomorrow comes and there's you've got something else on the green. So, so that's sort of um, that was the, the the point of the second post. And so I tell a story later on in the towards the bottom of this post. So my revelation in this whole thing was was a, a green committee meeting wrap up. Um, at the end of a season. And, and I, I was trying to remember the year that this was, I think it was after the Ryder cup, but I don't recall for sure. Um, and this, this member on the green committee said, well, you know, everybody was happy that the year had been a good year. Uh, the course had been great. And he says, well, I just don't think the greens are that consistent. And I'm thinking, what, what is he talking about? Not consistent. And as we work through it, it he, he comes to explain they're not consistent because of the sand. And, and his story was, or his example that he gave is, I'll play on a Friday and I'll play on a Saturday and the greens are spectacular, awesome, perfect. And then I'll, I'll have guests come in next week. And I know that I'm having these guests come in and I will call them, I will text them, I will tell them, oh my God, you can't believe how great the greens were. Just wait till you play on these things. And then on Monday, without telling us or without notice, because it's you know sort of a regularly scheduled practice, you would top dress. And then my guests would come on Tuesday or Wednesday and the greens were nowhere near what they were on Friday or Saturday. And I'm disappointed. And he used the E word, embarrassed. Uh, let me tell you, as a superintendent, if your members start to say something is embarrassing on the golf course, you better get it fixed pretty quick because uh, that's not a word you want. <laughs> I think we can all agree that's not a word you want to hear coming out of a member's mouth. But but he, the point was, he, he was, as I thought about it, as I, as I took the time to really think that through, I thought he's right. He's right. I understand why that would be the case because when we do put down top dressing, even light top dressing, there's a couple things that we're doing. 
a couple different options and I know people do it different ways. Either we don't mow for a couple of days or we go out and we mow right away, which to me has always seemed crazy because you're just picking up the sand that you laid down. But you, even if you mow right away, you're not getting a good cut. Your mowers are not going to be sharp. That sand is running through there and you're going to be cutting greens with dull blades, which um, does not result in a good quality surface. Um, so there is some impact to the surface. I wish that the data that I had that I showed in the third post, I wish I had that from when we were doing a light frequent top dressing um, program here. I don't, unfortunately, but I, I'm, I guarantee it would show some some drop in quality in the days after that event building yeah, back up. You would have these little waves. Yeah. You probably would. wouldn't dip. We're going to show those charts in a little bit, but if, if you haven't seen that post before um where uh, in 2021 there are three big well there's it starts off relatively low and then there's two dips during the season where the the trueness of the ball roll the smoothness of the ball roll really deteriorated because of essential maintenance but but the you don't have data from when you used to manage it with more frequent top dressing were you top when you did light top dressing, was that weekly, bi-weekly? How, how many times a year would it have been? I think we ever did it weekly. It was, I went from bi-weekly when I started, um, and we would do it every other Sunday night. We'd do dry sand into a dry canopy on a Sunday evening and try to get you know, the, the sand to be uh, the, as, have as little impact as possible. And th that is the way that we were doing it when this conversation with the Green Committee member took place. We were doing on a Sunday evening, dry sand into a dry canopy, maybe even with a little bit of water on a Sunday, you know, all the things that you would imagine doing. And then we'd not mow on Monday because we'd have an outside event or a, a member day off. But then, you know, by Tuesday, Wednesday, when he's talking about bringing these guests out, the, the sand was still impacting play. And I can see how that would be the case, especially if you're playing in the morning, there's a little bit of moisture, your ball gets a little bit of dew and collects the sand as it rolls along. Uh, I can, I can totally see that. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. You, I'm imagining what that chart would be. I think it would be pretty good by week two, but, um, you'd have a little, you'd have these little dips. Uh, it would mm -hmm. be a bunch of waves in terms of quality through the year. Um, we've got a couple more questions in the chat. Yeah, John, I, those and I think they're interesting. Let's yeah, go bring up John, 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 Emerson. John Emerson asks, I'll let you read it, Chris. So if invasive cultivation is needed, how much of these issues fall on the golfer to be more amenable? Or, or um, I think he means flexible. Flexible, maybe. I guess would be the... Um, yeah. Um, I think that's that's sort of, I guess, the point that I'm trying to make is is I think we... I think that as turf managers and I certainly have been there, we think that they should just say, oh yeah, I understand. I understand you have to do this. So it's cool if you have to do something disruptive to the surface and it's not as, but I don't think that's cool. If I was a member, I wouldn't, I wouldn't think that I would want to play. I get it. I mean, I've, I've talked about this before and I don't know if everybody has heard it or recalls it, but you know, Hazeltine is, has hosted numerous, I've talked about the Ryder Cup, but many championships. Um, and, and when I came here, and even after I was here, I always heard, a course is great for the championships and it's just okay in the in-between. 
and yeah, that's not something I wanted to hear or wanted to be. That's not something I want on my record. Um, we have 220 plus single digit handicaps amongst our membership. So everybody that comes out every single day that they come, they're expecting a great product. And, and I think to John's point and his question, it would be great if everybody just said, oh, these practices, yeah, we understand and we're, we're going to be okay if it's not, but I understand why they're not. Um, if I paid money to join a club and I expected to play golf and I expected golf to be consistent almost every day that I played, um, it would make me upset if this kind of thing was happening. So I think the point and maybe, um, okay, so uh, bring bring Eric's question up, um, okay. Mike, this is, I think, leading, I think my, I can transition to with Eric's question. Nice. Yeah. So Eric Johnson says it does raise the question of why am I doing this, which data collection may or may not support our decisions to disturb surfaces. Chris, what is your threshold or trigger to disturb surfaces? So, okay, well, let me let me comment on the first part of that because I think the idea of why am I doing this is something we should all ask ourselves. And if there is a good reason to do what we're doing, whatever that practice is, then great. Then I think that you can explain that to your golfers. You can, you, can, you can understand that that is necessary to get the results that you want to get. But my point is we, sh we should really know what, the, we should know the reasons why we're doing that. So if you're gonna go out and regularly light, do a, perform a light verticutting every other week or, or, or whatever that time frame might be, there, there needs to be some kind of data that is gonna tell me I need to do this. So then that's, you know, what Eric says, what's your threshold or trigger to disturb surfaces? So I, I can't say that I have any, and maybe that's just um, not enough time with, with the data that I'm going to talk about. But I think, I think that everybody should have some sort of threshold. So if, if you're talking about a, a regular verticutting or a regular top dressing, you should see that um, your, surface quality indicators in 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 our case it would be uh the stint meter the green speed and the um smoothness the str smoothness rating which we'll refer to as the, the bobble test um that they're dipping somehow that we're not able to get into the ranges that we want to get into and then i might look at it and say okay there is a practice that i can now do that will reset us back to where we need to get to but i I'm going to hypothesize that there that won't happen. I think uh, on our greens, this is our greens. I think that the the more we just go out and maintain and and um, roll and and cut, that we're going to keep those standards up at a high level without them dipping. They're not going to dip for need of some cultural practice. Um, that that would be my my hypothesis. Although. Um, but last, yeah, it's, some of these things we don't really know because right. it's some, it's clearly there's some amount of sand needed and maybe verticutting with the way that you're managing the greens, maybe verticutting is almost never needed. Maybe brushing yep. rarely needed. Yep. Maybe you don't need to punch holes, but definitely some amount of sand seems to be necessary to smooth and firm the surface. Yeah. 
I think that's true. And I don't want this to, I don't want this discussion to make anybody think whether you're a golfer or you're a superintendent that I'm, I'm trying to say you shouldn't do any of these things. Um, but I think we should really, I think that the, the, the crux of what I'm trying to say is you, you should have a way to know for sure if you need to do them. And that involves all kinds of data. My, my third, my third post was just simply on stint meter and smoothness data. And eventually I'm going to get to some of the other more long-term data, because of course you want to make sure that you're not doing anything. Um, just any on, on, on the topic of uh, things to measure, I'm reminded of a conversation we had the week before the Ryder cup in 2016. And and it was about clipping volume. It, it, it's not so much about clipping volume. It's what what were you trying to achieve? What, how fast did you want the grass to be growing? How much did you want the grass to be growing? Yeah. And uh, we went to one of the greens on the eastern side of the golf course. Uh, I I don't remember which one. And I was out there doing some task, and you came up and and you said, "Hey, Micah, this is kind of what I'm looking for." And we 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 got down on the green and you showed me just like mm -hmm. what you wanted the canopy to look like. And, and I was asking about, don't, don't you want to check that by having it grow at a certain rate? Yep. And you were, you thought that was interesting, but you were describing to me something that I thought was not transferable. Like you yeah. knew what you were trying to achieve and yep. you, you accomplished it and you could communicate that to your team because you are working together on a daily basis. But if you tried to describe that to somebody in California, let alone yeah. somebody in Hawaii or in Bangladesh, it's right. very difficult yeah. to describe what you were trying to make those greens play like and yeah. how you wanted that grass to look and how the leaves should be on each plant. I think with something like clipping volume, it's a little bit easier to transfer that type of um, yeah. Result. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when the, when the discussion, when the discussion comes, you know, it's interesting. It just, it just, this just reminded me of a, you know, golfers, we all know this and I mean, no offense to any golfer, but golfers will, will present you with ideas and it is their intent is to help you and to try to make the course better. That's, that's what they want. Ultimately, they want to play on the best course possible. And if they feel like they have a piece of information or they've gained a piece of information somewhere along the line, they're going to offer it to you, not because they think you're not doing your job, but because they think it can help make the course better. And I just was reminded of this as I was thinking about what Micah said, the same member who, who gave me the revelation with the sand on the greens came to me a couple of years before that saying that he had been at a course, um, that had the same kind of grass as we have and that they were, he asked them what they do to maintain their greens so nicely. And he said, well, they told me they verticut them every week. And, you know, he came back sort of offering me that piece of information. That's not to say, he, you know, he, I know he doesn't understand what that may or may not do for the, the grass, but he's just, he's offering information that he thinks is helpful. So, um, I think the, the point I'm trying to make is is when you get that sort of feedback on any type of item that you're you're doing on the course, um, 
remember that that's that's all they want they want the course to be as good as possible they're not trying to tell you right or wrong but as Micah said, when you measure these things, when you are measuring and you're keeping this data, it does give you something that you can you can um, speak to. I had a conversation last year with a, a member, and I sent him uh, one of the charts that's that's in my third post here, and he was just blown away, and he thought it was just really cool to see information about the course in that way, and of course. Right away, he asked me, "Well, can we can we have more days where the the smoothness is uh, is at this level?" And I said, "Yes, you know, I think we I think we can, and that's ultimately going to be the goal, um, you know." But of course, on the back end, we're doing testing, and Mike and I had a two and a half hour uh, discussion about this. I think back in November about um, the OM two four six. So we don't need to get into that, but that's a longer term sort of measurement testing that's being done to make sure that all of these decisions and a decision to back off, a decision to change the frequency of a certain practice is not doing some kind of undue harm. Because of course we want to make sure that that's the case as well. Should we look at the some of the data from the third post? So yeah. you you started off by asking, you started off by asking, is, is this disruption or what is a disrupted surface like? And then you explained in the second post how you over the course of your career, you've kind of changed from thinking about what might be minimal disruption for the grass could still be quite significant and even to the level of embarrassing uh, disruption from the perspective of a member, which right. they're kind of right in, in that. And you understood how they, they could reasonably take that view of it. And then you understand, uh, as you think about what the members want, you realize that they want to play on the best surfaces possible, especially at a club like Hazeltine. Right. And then you wonder how you can do that. And you've started measuring it. And I'll bring up that third post now, which starts looking at some of the data and you're using data as a, uh, as a singular. So you're doing the data says I would, uh, sometimes use it as a plural so i i might reuse different uh slightly different terminology i'm not decising i'm just saying <laughs> if we talk differently uh, well it, you know it's funny you say that because when i when i write about things like data i i do often think to myself is micah going to find this to be the correct terminology um so well, it's, every... it's it's not that you're uh it, I, I'm, and I don't find that to be offensive. I'm, I'm trying to get it right because I know that you, uh, you are going to know the, uh, I, I heard a, a great, I heard a great story. This is, uh, um, you two were playing in some small club in New York and they were going to, they were going to cover uh, a song, a well-known song. And I don't know, um, I don't remember what the song was, but Bono and the edge, the edge being the guitarist for you two, um, we're talking about this before the, they were talking about this cover song they were going to play beforehand. And the, and, and Bono said to the edge, are you, are you going to get the chords? Or do you know the chords, right? And do you have them all? Are you sure you're, you're confident because Lenny Kravitz is going to be here tonight and he, it, you can damn well be sure he's going to have the chords or he's <laughs> going to know which chords are right. So I think the point of that is, um, 
that when I write these, Micah, um, I do I think about, am I getting this terminology right? Because I damn well know that you're going to, you're going to know whether it's right or wrong. So well, you, anyway. you, uh, yeah. So I would say I would have written it as the data say, because the data, data. is okay. plural and okay. datum is singular, okay. but, uh, in common, at least in American usage, in the past ten or twenty years, you're doing it in the way that normal people use data. Um, but I, I just habitually refer to it as a as a plural because it's it's multiple pieces of data. So, but please don't change. Uh, <laughs> Because it, you will be the one that looks strange if you start. If I, uh, if I start doing it that way, yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, so I appreciate all the questions in the chat. If there are other ones that come up, uh, feel free to ask. And we'll, uh, we'll dive into this third post now about what the data say. Oh. <laughs> John says that uh, he's reminded of me when using data and spelling phosphorus. Yeah, thank you for spelling phosphorus correctly. That's certainly a, a pet peeve of mine. When people spell phosphorus, it's P-H-O-S-P-H-O-U-R-S or O-R-O-U-S. That's uh, quite incorrect and it means something like phosphorescent or glowing and <laughs> americans tend to think that that's the british spelling so it it maybe it's fancier and still okay but it's just never correct to spell phosphorus wrong and i i think it's particularly an egregious error when soil testing laboratories show that on their soil test reports and it, it's also a particularly a, a poor error uh, for f people selling phosphorus fertilizer products to make. Um, so people that are involved in providing information about how much phosphorus is in the soil or people involved in selling phosphorus, I think they should spell the, the element properly. <laughs> thanks. Thanks for that okay. comment, John. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, so jump into the data because this is really about uh it, it's not so much uh, this series of blog posts which again i i can't recommend it highly enough that people uh read these because you've explained it so well but it's it's not really so much about the health of the grass it's about playability and about what work we do might inadvertently be changing playability and we maybe we don't recognize it. Yeah, it, that's a that's an interesting discussion too. It might might be its a, a, its own complete podcast, or maybe this is the this is the one for it. We didn't really set a time limit on this, but um, um, I know that you know a number of years ago you started to see there were some people, and I think I think Micah, you were were one of those people I would pay attention to who would say something along the lines of, well, I'm not really worried about the roots. Uh, I'm more concerned about what's happening on top and, and making a, a good plane surface. And I think when I first heard the, that, I was probably at Northland where 
a large where I thought that a large part of what I wanted to do was to focus on having the strongest plant, which meant the best roots, um, the deepest roots, that kind of thing. And I, I remember initially thinking, well, that doesn't seem like the right thing. It seems like if you if you had really strong root system, then that would equate to a, a really good surface. But it might, but I'm not sure that it, it definitely means that you're going to have that. I think the way that we maintain surfaces is the, the two are not necessarily well um, linked to each other, I, I guess. Uh, the things that need to be done to create sort of good under the soil um, results on your plants are probably things that are going to not result in the best surface on top. And yeah, that's where definitely. And, and we, and that we do that forgetting that um, what our golfers really are playing on is the surface on top. And, um, you know, should they just accept that we have to do things that disrupt their enjoyment of the surface in order to create a stronger plant? Um, I suppose that we as superintendents think that they should because we think that a stronger plant is necessary. But I'm I'm not sure that you are sacrificing the strength of the plant if you just concentrate on the surface. And actually, um, one of my posts I think is gonna is gonna touch on that because that's that's something I've seen as we reduce the frequency of our top dressing, is that the the health of the plant is way better, way better than it was when we were putting top dressing down on some kind of regular basis. Um, so yeah, I. I've seen in uh, warm season turf in Thailand, I, I just finished a survey of 30 golf courses. I did this with Brad Revel. Um, so I think he and I went to a couple together. He did seven courses or something, and I did 20 or, or, or something like that. So I've, I've been around to see a lot of golf courses in Thailand over the past couple of months. And I do notice around the perimeters, there's uh, where... And I just wonder how much of that is due to rolling and mowing and turning mowers when there's sand on the surface, um, yep. which, um, well, yeah, I think as rolling became, um, a key component to turf management, um, you know, there was Nikolai did all this work at, at Michigan state where you could roll and roll and roll and essentially you weren't impacting the surfaces at all. But then sort of from the field, the superintendent world was saying, oh my gosh, like if I roll um, and I'm rolling all the time, I'm just wearing our wearing out the edges of our greens. And I was seeing that too. There's no doubt about it that we were with consistent rolling or constant rolling, we were wearing out the edges of the surfaces. And so I even got to the point where I um, was rolling less mowing more rolling less which is the exact opposite of that that sort of seminal work that nikolai was doing um they use that word correctly like seminal. I, I think so i think okay. so it's that's like the foundational yeah uh, I think, fluid I think, or the foundational information yeah and i think when it comes to rolling i think that his work was that it was foundational so um I was sort of turning that around, trying not to wear out these edges of the greens um, by all this rolling. But but what I've I've found 
since I've started collecting more and more data is this, our surfaces just are not as good when we don't roll. They're not. And what I've also noticed, and I've noticed these things sort of by accident, not, is that when we don't, we go a whole season without sand on the surface and we just roll and roll and roll every single day. The surface quality is excellent. The speed is excellent. The smoothness, everything is excellent. And so is the health of the grass. In the last two years with just having just two top dressing events during the year, a May top dressing event a win, or a, and an August top dressing event, both of which are planned, both of which the members know is coming so that there's a period of time in which we can just let the grass grow up through the sand and we don't have to produce some uh, great condition for them. Um, they can plan around it. We can plan around it. Um, that's how we do our two top dressing events. When that is the only top dressing that's applied, we can roll every single day and we see absolutely no impact on the edges of the greens. Um, 2019 was the last time I applied sand during the middle of the season. And it was, uh, Micah, you were here for the, the women's KPMG that year. And we had done some top dressing. The greens were not as smooth coming out of winter as we wanted. We didn't have a lot of, we didn't have really good grass growth almost until that exact week of the event. And um, the greens were not to satisfaction from a smoothness standpoint. So we did apply some top dressing before the event. Then we rolled and we double cut and we did a bunch of work. And then a few weeks later, despite having put this sand down before the event, I decided because it was our kind of one month trigger event that we were gonna top dress. We did, it was July, it was hot. We got some skidding with the roller right after we did that top dressing. And that turf on the edges just declined and went downhill and, um, and we lost it for the summer and had to wait for the, the cooler weather in the, in the fall to have it come back. We haven't seen any of that since we stopped doing these in-season top dressings. We can just go out and just do whatever we need to do to maintain the surface um, quality, rolling and mowing, I guess I should say, not whatever. Yeah. It, well, it goes back to Eric's question of, uh, or Eric's comment about asking the question, why am I doing this? And right. As we look at your data, I'll bring, I'll bring this up and we can look at some of these data. The, the most recent post, the one that, that went out yesterday, um, shows actually what you've measured and it, I think, I mean, it doesn't surprise me now. I'm the one that made the charts. So I kind of saw how it was progressing through the year. Uh, and we've talked about this. We kind of know how it would be, but. If, if I would have looked at this five years ago, I would have been shocked or I wouldn't have expected it to be like this. 10 years ago, I would have said it's, uh, it's impossible. Um, and I, I guess, I don't know, this is, it's really interesting because there are huge implications for what these results show. And if we, yeah, so, why don't you describe this post? Yeah, so so what I wanted to do is, you know, the first two posts were sort of determining, like, what, what do we think about uh, uh, what we're doing on the surface? What do our members or our golfers think about what we're doing on the surface? And then sort of coming to the, the data that we've been taking, uh, green speed for much longer than the, the, the bobble test, but and showing what's actually happening when we maintain the greens like this. Um, are we you know, what, what, what is it that leads to quality of, of surface? 
Um, and, and I think as we, as we scroll through these. So the first one you showed was sort of, I think what you, what you kind of defined as a, as the goal, which was, uh, a bobble test of eight or above and a, the, like the minimum goal would be a stint meter average across all the greens of 11 and a bobble test of eight or above. So, and, and that, again, this is kind of the first year with this, these, this data paired together. I've taken stint meter every day for a number of years, and I have a lot of information on that. But this year, um, after reading some, uh, some information that both Micah and Jason Haynes had, had put out, um, I, I added this STRI smoothness rating or, or bobble test, which is simply watching the ball roll across the green as it goes down off the stim meter and rating what happened. Does it snake? Does it, does it, um, does it chatter? Does it have any big, um, um, disturbances in, in its role? And then you give it a rating. It sounds complicated, but as you do it more and more, you really, uh, you, you come, it comes quite naturally to, uh, to do it. Actually, the, the hardest part about it was for me when I first started doing this was to remember to, to watch it roll as opposed to just sort of rolling it and getting ready to roll the next ball. Yeah. I've, I've been doing this for about 18 months now when I, when I take data on golf course putting greens and I just uh, record this as I'm doing the stint meter rolls and a bauble is when the ball leaves the surface. So the first thing you're looking at is, is, does the ball, bounce enough during this roll not not the initial hop not the initial bump bounce that when it comes off the stint meter but once it it finishes that initial bounce and then it's rolling across the green does it leave the surface if it does there's bobble so you evaluate how much bobble there is yep. if if there's any bobble it has to be a six or below so i'm never gonna it's never gonna be seven never gonna be eight if the ball leaves the surface so that's easy and then you look for chatter chatter is vertical deviation from instead of just rolling it's it the ball seems to be moving up and down but it's not actually leaving the surface that's chatter and then snaking is when the ball moves laterally, left or right, deviating from a true roll. And there's various gradations on a decimal scale from 1 to 10 in which you rate the, uh, rate the bobble test. And it, it's exactly what the golfers are looking at, actually. And yep. uh, so it turns out to be quite simple. Now, Lee Strutt had a couple of questions or comments on Twitter today uh, um, or maybe today in th Thailand time um, asking about the perimeter um, and I've got a video that I've done and, and a blog post where I've explained five different ways of measuring smoothness and trueness and um, the perimeter is one that that's something that takes an iPhone into a custom built um, uh, rolling like frame roller skate it looks like a something like that it's got four yeah. wheels rolls across the, the surface uses the motion sensor in the iphone to assess the the deviation um carl perry has been so kind as to send one of those uh for me to 
get some data with. Um, so I'm hoping to get some data this year and, and see what I think of it. But to me, anything that requires a tool is a little, I mean, a tool beyond the stint meter that everybody probably is already using. Um, it's a little bit complicated, which is also why I'm not I understand the USGA is developing a device that a ball is going to sense this. Um, I uh, I haven't seen this. I think it will be really interesting to see the data, but I, I, I'm kind of happy with the bobble test because the, the thing that you're trying to figure out is, is this green acceptable or not? Mm-hmm. It, it, is, is the condition reaching our standard or not? And it's so easy to do with the bobble test in your case, you want it to be eight or above, and it's an eight is basically very little chatter, very little snaking. So it's it's almost a perfectly true true role, um, where there would just be a isolated chatter events, um, possibly an isolated snaking, yep. and and at nine it's basically indistinguishable from perfect. Right. Yeah. And and so to me, I'm like, what? Uh, for okay, for research purposes, where we're trying to assess something very carefully and put an exact number to it that's been measured, for research purposes, I can understand where we might want something else. But to just simply evaluate a green, I think yeah. it's hard. It's hard to beat the bobble test. For for a, you know, I think this is a perfect, uh, a great example of the the statement that perfect is the enemy of of good. In this case, you you don't need this data to be perfectly compiled by a machine, uh, a person, a human doing it every day, day after day will, will acquire perfectly good usable data for your own golf course. Um, so that you can, um, yeah, as you said, evaluate how, how your surfaces are performing. So maybe scroll down, Micah, to the, the monthly, um, chart. Let's just, let's describe this chart here. Maybe oh, first. We, yeah. So you, this chart is showing bobble test across the horizontal x-axis and stint meter on the y-axis. And so you want this. So this is for the entire year. There were 91 days in which the stint meter average was uh, greater than or equal to 11 feet. And the bobble test was greater than or equal to eight. So those would be all the points that are in the top right corner with a um, relatively fast speed and a almost perfectly smooth roll. And then we we broke that down by month, and the the next chart that I'll show shows that. Yep. And so in in Minnesota, we can this is the exact same chart with the with the plots put into months. So the the bobble is across the x-axis, and the stimp is on the the y-axis. So um, higher up on the chart means faster, and further to the right means smoother. Um, and you can see in Minnesota, we come out of the winter and we, we apply a fairly heavy top dressing going into winter. So we're dealing with sand on the surface in April and the grass isn't really growing. So that sand is sort of impacting things. And you can see how that impacts the ball roll and the speed to some, some degree as well. So April, um, and then May, you can see there's a little bit of, uh, a little bit of quality coming into May. We also do one of our big, um, top dressing events. One of our planned top dressing events happens in May, so that, as you'll see on the next chart, um, can can impact things. Now we get into June, and now we're starting to really see things get to be pretty consistent. Um, you can see, you know, high up in the right-hand corner, 
means the greens are fast and they're they're very smooth. Um, so in June, mostly up in that top end corner, top right hand corner, and then in July you can see a really tight pattern, which just means um, virtually every day the greens were fast and smooth. Well, they um, they were they. In fact, they were above nine on almost every day in July. In 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 June, there's only two days I think that didn't yep. meet your threshold. Yep, exactly. Uh, two days in June that didn't meet it. No days in July, and then we get into August, which, as you can see, just kind of turns into a bit of a mess. And I'll I'll, I'll explain that. And then September, um, I, I think, is is a product. What you see with September there is not too bad, but that's a product of what happened in August. And then I think October is a little bit of a product of what we were doing in both August and September. You know, if you talk about room for growth, so if I'm going to sit down with a green committee and, and talk about these charts and talk about where we can get better, which which I, I will do, um, you know, I, I suspect that August can look much more like June and September and October can look much more like um, July. So here's a here's a chart now that shows the entire year of just the, the bobble test. So that is now on the y-axis going uh, up and down, um, and then a time scale on the bottom showing uh, the whole the entire golf season from left to right. And each There's three day, lines. Yep, each day of bobble test. So you can see. See how these lines dip, and, and Micah created these charts. So many thanks to him for both creating them and allowing me to use them. They're they're really great. Um, you can see the lines and how we start the season kind of low, um, and then we work our way up to a pretty uh, a pretty a real consistent um, you know in the nines creeping towards you know higher higher than nine. I mean, anywhere between nine and ten is you're talking about a, a, a near almost I would call a perfect green um, and then there's a big dip that comes in May and that as it's noted there is a heavy a heavy sand top dressing eight uh, eight tenths of a millimeter that was just chosen at that time because you expect the grass will uh, have relatively decent growth potential or yeah so, so that time frame is a little bit of a holdover from when we used to aerify or had the idea that we were going to aerify twice a year. Um, and, you know, this this is a good example of how I may look at this and change um, the, the way that we're um, doing our practices. So we talked in the, the last discussion about the OM246 results prescribing an amount of sand that we want to put down each year. And if I can get to the point where I can put down and get down the amount of sand that I need to get down, without doing such a heavy amount in May, um, I might I might look at doing that, um, you know, because what if, so we see this bobble test score drop when we put that sand down, and then it takes, you know, the better part of two weeks for it to get back up to where we want it to be above nine. And what if we eliminated that or we somehow reduced that, the amount of top dressing applied at that time and we could, we could, change that from say you know two weeks to seven days um and we get back in there or what if what if we didn't have to apply any of that sand in that period and instead the line um and went up in april got above nine and then just stayed above nine until we we did our work in august uh that would be i think quite appealing to our membership um, that would be if we can do that without causing undue harm 
then that's that that would be a goal for, of ours. Um, I, that dip that comes just from top dressing, that, and that was a that was the maximum amount of sand that you could really put and have the I canopy like, keep yeah, it. Yeah, I felt that we did not put any holes. There was no aerification involved in that, so it's just simply sand on the surface. And I felt like at that time of the year, um, that was the maximum amount of sand I would want to put on without having some something to work it into the into the profile. And then, so the average bauble test was above nine going into that top dressing event, which yep. was on May eleventh, I think. Yep. Um, and then, and then, it drops down into the mid sixes initially. Yep. And that took until June 1st to get up to nine again on average. So, um, yeah, I mean, two, almost three weeks to, to get back. And what's happening there is that it's, it's because of the sand, but it's also because after you put the sand top dressing, you can't mow and roll as much as you typically would. So it's first, the ball's deviating a bit because of the sand itself but then also there's there's the lack of maintenance that that just can't be done when the greens have sand on them right and yeah if you're mowing you're you're mowing sand you're you're getting you know the reels are dull you're not getting a good cut um you know there's there's some period of time there where there's um that the lack of maintenance is impacting that as well and i will say um Somebody asked, I don't see it, it's, it's, it's been, it's, it's worked its way down, but somebody asked about the type of sand that we use. And, and I do use a sand that is more consistent with what was in the root zone. So it is a, it's a bigger, it's a USGA um, spec top dressing. It's not a, it, it has some bigger pieces in there. And, um, and when we work the sand into the holes, I will also use, and before the winter, I'll use the crush component that was a part of that um, profile. Um, so, so that does, there's no doubt that that impacts, um, the, 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 the way the ball rolls across it, but, you know, that's part of getting, taking these, these periods of time and getting the right kind of, in my opinion, getting the right kind of sand on there. So, you know, I think we've, we've all maybe heard horror stories of this idea of, you know, using an ultra fine sand so that you can you can get the best possible top dressing, post top dressing conditions, but then you use this ultra fine sand and then there's some kind of weird layer created on top of a, another um, another layer or on top of the profile that then has to be dealt with by subsequent coring and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, so I'm trying to use a sand that matches well with our profile so that as we build this profile larger in time, we're gonna have a consistent type of um, sand that that's the idea behind it so john john asked a question about um data showing layering i i suppose he might uh be asking about data showing layering because of the infrequent he, he said biannual sandings yeah um i think he might also mean uh not just data but uh concern about that layering yeah um i don't i don't have any data i used to be concerned that that could happen i'm not anymore um it, you know i i um 
somewhere I posted fairly recently. If you go back through the, the pictures on Twitter, I think I posted a photo of uh, a plug that came out of one of our greens. And, you know, visually there's, there's no layering there and the performance is good as far as infiltration, you know, infiltrating the way that we would want it to infiltrate to, uh, to, to perform the way that we need it to. And, you know, moisture holding is, so all of those sort of measures, that we would look to, to, to see if there's a problem with layering. I don't tell me that there's any problem with layering, but it's something we'll continue to pay attention to for sure. Yeah, but exactly. That's how I would think of it too, is I, I would always be aware of layering as a potential problem and yep. watch for it. Then if you see visual, I'm not so concerned with visual layers. Although if I see visual layers, then I'm going to be like, okay, let's, let's, also be aware that this could potentially be a problem but i'm going to be looking at things like uh water infiltration and root growth and uh, if the roots don't grow through particular layers or if water doesn't move through particular layers then i'm going to realize it's not working and sure. i'm going to have to change it yeah I, I would hope to i would hope that just paying attention visually we can stay ahead of anything of that nature but it's certainly something to be aware of but not concerned with is the way i would i would say it all right and then can we let's keep going through this chart and then we've got some great uh questions also in the discussion so so um, steve steve um, you, um i'm going to take a stab at the pronunciation new lip new lip that would it looks like that might be how you pronounce that. I, as far as I know, that would be correct. Yeah. So, uh, again, I, I would say, you know, he's, he's right in that I'm, you know, I'm talking about the type of grasses that I'm dealing with. And I am on the understanding that on, on ultra dwarfs, it, it may require something else. I mean, I, I don't have near the experience even looking at ultra dwarf, um, grasses that you do, Mike, or, or other people who might be listening do. But I know that that surface is awfully tight. And when I look at them, I think I think that there's pretty much zero part of the sand that we put down here in Minnesota that would make it into that canopy. So um, th that's yeah. certainly, it's, I'm, I'm not trying to speak with any knowledge of those types of grasses. But again, um, you know, I would just say that it, I think the, the, thought exercise that anybody can go through on these sorts of things is 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 good is worth it so yeah i think that first chart that you showed in this data post which is you've identified the speed threshold that you'd like to meet on a daily basis mm -hmm. and the smoothness bobble test threshold that you'd like to meet on a daily basis and you're trying to maximize the number of days in the year in which that is accomplished. Now, right. if if that is uh, ninja time every Monday and verti double verticut every Thursday and top dress every Saturday morning, and that and and you do that all year and that produces the results, then that may be a good uh, maintenance approach for a particular facility. Yeah. Right. So yeah, it, I totally agree. If, if you're doing things that, again, know why you're doing what you're doing. And if what you're doing is producing the results that you want, then I would say you're, you're, there's something right there. But, you know, at the same time, if you, if you don't 
if you take something, you could take something out of the equation, take a ninja time out, see what's happening. See, you, it, it's all observation, but I think we should just know that the practices that we're doing are, are, are a part of creating the results that we want to create rather than just throwing a whole bunch of stuff at the wall and, and, um, and just saying, Hey, I'm doing all this stuff. So it's, it's gotta all be, it's gotta all have its place. Eric's got a question too. He, um, I don't, I don't know that either of us have an answer to this. Uh, Eric was asking if we're seeing a difference in recovery time using a measure of smoothness, like the bobble test between coring and solid tining. Um, I, I, I don't, I don't know that I have an answer to that. Like, I don't, I don't know if you do either, but um, I think the data that we have here on, on this chart from August can speak to that just a little bit. Um, okay. Let's, bit uh, let's maximize the size of this chart. So, uh, there's this big gap that happened because it requires extra focus and extra um, concentration in order to measure the bobble test at the same time that you're doing the stim meter. And yeah. as you got into late June, you were nine or 10 on every roll. So the, yeah. the, it was just perfect roll, perfect roll. So you just stopped recording it. And, Correct. and that seems quite reasonable to me because what we're really looking at is for deviations from a perfect role. So if you're, it, it's easy to do that because you're not seeing the deviations. So you just say, okay, we're fine. We're not even going to bother recording this data. And that went all the way up until early August. Yeah. I mean, if you look at that chart, it's, it's, it's quite reasonable to say that really from almost June 1st, until August 3rd, every, the bobble test every day was a nine. There, there are a couple little outliers in there, some eights, maybe some days we didn't mow something of that nature. Um, there was a needle tiny in there somewhere, if I'm not mistaken, I wish I would have noted that I didn't. Um, but essentially for two months we went, we had a perfect bobble test of nine. And you know, that's a, that's, that's a long period of time that uh, our members, you know, played on what I would call Ryder Cup like or championship conditions on our greens. You know, that's that's quite a pleasing thing. In, everybody who came out, brought a guest, um, expected something that they they saw two days ago, got what they expected during that period of time. And then August happened. So then, yeah, August happened. So we we performed the airification on August third, and um, you know, it just. We've all had this happen. You 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 do a practice that you think is going to work for what you want to do, and for whatever various reason, it, it turns out to be the wrong um, type of 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 process. And that was the case for us. So um, right after we did it, you can see that the scores. It, this was holes in the ground in the green, and then a a, a, a similar sand sandy surface left over to what we had in in may so you can see that the, the bobble test drops in a similar way and sort of starts to almost creep up in a in a in a similar way but then it flattens out and it plat it doesn't plateau but the the curve flattens it doesn't go up as steep it doesn't return to nine we went through all of august without having any nines we went through almost 
most of September without any nines. Um, we, we finally got back into the nines when we got to late uh, September. And then that was just for a brief period. Then we went back. And then, you know, by that time, we're starting to lose a lot of grass growth. Uh, the, the GP has gone down. The grass is not growing like it was. So our maintenance routines are, are less. October got back up into the nines, but um, this chart doesn't show. But the speed speeds had dropped in October, too. So we weren't in that 12.9. We were more like 11.9, which is still plenty good. But um, it, so, Eric, I to answer Eric's question, I might say that even though that verification wasn't occurring, it took a long time to heal like a coring might have taken. And I think that that shows, you know, the faster, if you put holes in the ground, the faster that they heal up and the faster the sand on the surface diminishes, uh, the faster you'll get your bobble test back up to where you want it to be. I would say that um, sand was the impact of this bobble test until about the third week of August, where you can see it's going up fairly steeply. And then mm -hmm. that flattish, curve that goes through September to about October 1st was unhealed um, holes. And, and of course you could have dumped fertilizer on it. You right. could have dumped nitrogen fertilizer on it. Yep. But the problem with that is you end up creating a whole bunch of organic matter that you then in the future have to come in and punch more holes and yes. add a lot more sand. So it's a yep. vicious cycle and it the more that i i measured data about the om246 test measuring the total organic material right at the surface of a putting green and especially looking at how that changes over time and looking at how much sand people are applying looking at how much disruption people are doing to greens and trying to look at how much the grass is actually growing it seems that the key to this is not so much how much sand we put and how much um, surface area removal there is with coring. It, to me, it seems that the key is to minimize the organic matter accumulation rate. And, yeah. and that's some, you, you cannot minimize the accumulation rate when you add more nitrogen fertilizer. And so um, that, that is, uh, it's a, it's a tough one. Cause yeah, I, I'm just, I think that if, if you don't core and don't top dress so much, you don't have to add so much fertilizer. Um, I, that's something I'm going to, I'm going to make a lot of calculations about this year and try to try to explain just how big of an effect I think this really has. That is also, I think kind of under, uh, it's outside people's, uh, thoughts and and field of vision right now um yeah. because because we're so it's so customary to apply in american units like three or four pounds of nitrogen to putting greens and in uh international units that would be like 150 to to uh 200 kilograms of nitrogen per hectare um which in some parts of the world that would be a substantial amount in others it would be a lot but something that i've seen is i've gone all over the world and uh, again been influenced quite a bit by the way that bent grass greens are managed in japan is seeing how low those are i had a blog post last week um, that was looking at data from 2015 in japan and a whole bunch of courses across the country reported how much nitrogen they applied they'd 
applied uh, the median value for those bent grass greens was like 11.2 uh, grams, uh, which would be 112 kilograms of nitrogen per hectare, which is about two, uh, 2.1 pounds or 2.2 pounds of nitrogen per thousand square feet per year. So when you are doing that amount of nitrogen supply, that used to seem incredibly low to me. It used to seem so low to only apply that much for a place like Japan that has quite a long growing season. But when you do that, when you create that type of growth rate, that the type of growth rate that happens when you're only applying um, 100, let's say 100 uh, kilograms of nitrogen per hectare, you don't have to do so much disruption. The organic matter accumulation rate is relatively low. You don't have to put so much sand. But once you start having, once you start putting sand and putting uh, coring and, and doing coring, then you have to have a faster growth rate in order to recover. So it's it's hard to separate where the cause and, and where the effect is. There's one question that I can answer here. Uh, Dr. Daniel Hahn has joined and said, uh, have you used something like the perimeter to measure smoothness rather than the holding out test or the bobble test? And he said, sorry if I missed it. He just tuned in. Uh, Daniel, I did. Uh, I sorry, did, duty, duty called. Um, yes, that's, that's yeah. fine, Chris. So I'm just going to finish answering a question about okay. uh, the perimeter and then we'll be back to your insight. So um, I... I've seen the perimeter in action. I've I've used it a few times, but I've never had one until this year. Carl Perry was kind enough to uh, send one from which I will be able to get some data. So I'm going to take a closer look at it. Um, I I do think, though, I mean it's 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 a brilliant idea to have a simple uh, rolling device that can have an iPhone in it that a lot of people have, or you can get a dedicated iPhone to use in this. Um, perimeter, and then you use the motion sensor as that carefully calibrated device goes across the surface to measure what the vertical and lateral deviation is um, of the ball that's embedded in that um, or attached to those four wheels as it goes across the surface. It's a great idea. It's very sensitive. Uh, it, it's also an extra tool to carry around, and it's something that... Um, Chris said it's like perfect is is the enemy of the good. Um, I, I'm quite satisfied with what the bobble test tells us because the bob, bobble test tells us we're looking for if is the ball bouncing? Does it leave the ground? Does it bounce but not leave the ground? And does it deviate to the left or to the right, uh, which is called snaking? So you're looking at it with your eyes, which is the same thing that the golfers are doing. And it turns out to be quite an accurate assessment of that. So I like the bobble test because it's so easy. Anybody can do it. Um, and you don't have to have a special device for it. Now, for research purposes, I do think, as I mentioned earlier, that um, there, there could be quite a bit of value in having devices that measure something precisely. All right, Chris, um, where were yeah, we? Yeah. Um, so if we look at that, what, what we had in August, the bobble test, and getting back to 
the very beginning of this discussion and the photos of is this disruption or is this disruption and, and how we think about it as a as a turf manager and how our golfers will think about it. I think that August is a is a good example that what the visual of the surface looks like is a is is important to to our golfers. So even though in August you can see that uh, within an, a pretty short period of time we were back to a bobble test above eight, which is our our threshold that we want to meet, and that continued to rise. Um, the speed I don't remember how the speed correlated during those periods, but I think the speed was okay, probably close to or above 11, which is again above our threshold. But that whole period, really almost until October 1st, um, our members were just not happy with the surfaces, despite the fact that the data was telling me that they were they were rolling fine, the speed and the smoothness was good. But they yeah, weren't perfect. happy because they, they looked like they had been disrupted. They were noticeably... Um, disrupted visually and and that is an, an important aspect in how they feel about the golf course whether we believe that or not yeah it's uh it's tough when there's holes if you can visually see something and I, i've uh let's see i'm gonna stop sharing the screen but i see that you've said uh coming up post four the paradox of progress so um, maybe we'll talk about that a little bit but i'll uh I'm certainly looking forward to, to reading that. Um, so um, as we've talked about this, kind of what you talked about in the second blog post too, about uh, maybe the members are right. Mm -hmm. I've thought about situations where I've traveled to other parts of the world. Uh, and I use this as the example going to Royal Melbourne in Australia. And if I, if I traveled all the way to Royal Melbourne, or, or if I traveled all the way to St. Andrews in Scotland and I was going to play the old course, my maybe if, if this is my first time to be there, I've probably read some books about this or watched some uh, tournament highlights from this or uh, looked at various course reviews on Golf Club Atlas or other places. I would have studied it to see what am I, what is so great about this golf course that I'm going to see and to make sure that I get all the best of my time when I'm there. And as a golfer, if I went to Royal Melbourne and if I saw visible holes on the green, and if I had to putt through a bit of sand, I would feel like I wasn't getting the full experience that I'd traveled all the way to Melbourne to experience. And the same thing anywhere, I think, and that's right. probably pretty typical for a golfer's perspective. And so as a, as a golf course superintendent, if you're able to avoid that as much as possible, that seems like it would be quite advantageous. But as you're probably going to talk about in post four, the paradox of progress, maybe we, we have so, uh, so many, uh, professors or, uh, teachers like me uh, certainly in the past that tell us that all this stuff is essential and we have so much technology in in terms of the machinery that can do this yep. so efficiently and so well and so yep. many options yep. that maybe we're a little bit blind to that simple thing that golfers want perfect greens all the time yep um i think you have when i wrote that uh line previewing the the fourth post 
I was hoping that that would be um, what what people would anticipate about that post because that is kind of what I'm gonna I'm gonna try to get into is this idea that uh, we've we've been almost blinded by progress and you know as superintendents and as as turf managers we always think you know everything is about progressing everything is about raising the bar to the another level and then that becomes the the, the bar becomes the floor and then we got to raise the bar to the next level and we do that in in lots of different ways um i think in many ways we do that by you know improving the technology improving the the means in which we we do things um and the the simplicity in which we can do things as you said mike equipment i mean top dressing equipment today versus what it used to be is you know amazing and when we have these things we we sell we sell to our members well this is why we need to get it this is what we need to do with it um you know all these various things and we and we do them because we see other people doing them and we think well if it's been created and it's been invented and it's it's here then if we use it it must make things better and i think we think that we're this is progress and it, i think it has blinded us a little bit into well what is the um what is the real um point of what we're doing which is to create a great playing surface that people can play on and enjoy um for the maximum number of days during the course of a golf season. It's yeah. It's an interesting way to think of it that, um, I, I guess is a little bit outside the mainstream because I see, uh, certainly I guess in, in American turf grass education, if, if we go to turf school, of course we get taught that we're going to be, maintaining a football field or a golf course and it's going to be a playing surface but really we're we're in the ag department of a university and we're getting taught about plants and about soils in a very agriculturally um that's that's what the viewpoint is coming from and we're talking about how to have healthy plants and that sort of thing and so um as we progress through our careers there's a lot of focus about having healthier grass, more stress tolerant grass, all of this, all of these things that are about having better grass mm-hmm. um, that sometimes actually does come at the expense of playing surfaces. Yeah. And it's, if, if we just forget about the roots and forget about the, how stress tolerant the grass is and forget about how healthy the grass is, and just say, okay, let's keep a hundred percent grass cover. I, I'm a huge advocate of having a hundred percent grass cover on greens. That's my number one criterion when I evaluate a putting green. Is is there a hundred percent grass cover? That's the starting point. And if we have a hundred percent grass cover, it's a lot easier to work towards the playability that we're trying to achieve, which is quite hard. If if you don't have a hundred percent grass cover. Uh, I'm always starting with trying to fix that situation. Um, well, that's that's interesting you say that because <laughs> there may be another post that comes um, down the road asking about uh, is this disruption, and uh, it may be along those lines. And again, uh, I always use my own photos, so um, I, I won't use anything from somebody else. But 
I, it's that's on my mind to be part of this whole thing. Cool. Let's let's uh, do a couple more of these comments. Uh, YouTuber forty nine has solid timed solid timed and hollow timed in Washington one fall. Solid time healed and closed much quicker. Nine days versus two and a half weeks. Yep, that would be about typical, I think. So mm -hmm. it would be expected that solid time would be faster recovery. Um, couple comments. Yeah, Eric hasn't done bobble data on POA annua yet. Are you, what do you think, Eric? Would you think you, are you intrigued by this and you think it might be useful? Yeah, I really can't. Um, I've yet to, I've, I carefully evaluate, before I decide to take some piece of uh, measurement, take some measurement and record it as data. Did I say that right? I use the right? I think um, so. Okay. Um, I, I evaluate it pretty carefully. Uh, oftentimes you and I'll have a discussion about whether that's valuable. I don't want to waste my time recording anything that I think isn't going to really make a difference and be valuable. So everything that we do is, is, uh, is I've found to be valuable. And I, I've really found this bobble test to be a valuable um, piece of information, especially when coupled with the, um, the stim meter you know, and, and you can take the two. It literally adds um, almost no time to my collection of data in the morning because yeah, you're I, doing it at the same time. My history with this is like most things. I'm um, kind of resistant to it because I don't like doing extra work and extra data collection. And I just kind of assumed that for most places, just the stint meter is sufficient because I guess I thought people were evaluating how the ball's rolling and not just looking only at the speed. But in some measurements in Thailand, I, uh, the average green speed in Thailand is uh, uh, about nine, nine and a half feet. So it's, it's pretty fast when you measure something that's 10 and a half feet. And I was measuring at one of the top courses in Thailand and the speed was over 10 feet so the green speed was pretty fast and the professional there was telling me that yeah the greens weren't he's like it's rolling okay but there's something wrong with the roll and i was doing the bobble test and getting five and sixes because sometimes mm -hmm. the ball was bouncing it was still going fast i mean by thailand standards it was it was 10 and a half feet that and the greens are sloping that's pretty fast for me and yet the ball was snaking all over the place, chattering through the roll. And it was, it was a five or six on the bubble test. And I guess I had thought that when the ball was rolling like that, people were no, like golf course superintendents were noticing that and were doing things to strive to make it smoother. Yep. But I realized that um, maybe there was a gap. Um, and so I, I'm begrudging... Uh, well, I just decided, yeah, maybe maybe this is a uh, a measurement that I'm going to have to start adding or start recommending that more people do. Well, I think that's a good point. And again, I don't have this information. I haven't done a bobble test over um, turf that's been verticut. 
but I suspect uh, for some amount of time, depending upon how aggressive that is, probably, and, and maybe there's an amount that can be done that's, that makes it less impactful, um, but I suspect that for some amount of time after that's done, that ball is going to be affected, and the way that it rolls is going to be affected by that, um, that verticutting. Um, you know, we do occasionally brush our greens, so uh, it would be good to get some data and make some notes of after maybe a brushing event, a brimming event, um, what, what happens to that bobble test. Um, I suspect there'll be a negative impact. Uh, I think anytime anything that that hits the surface um, outside of a roll or a mow um, is going to have a negative impact. I, I actually remember the week of the Ryder Cup, Kim Sintorn from uh, the Swedish Golf Federation had a perimeter here. And he had asked me if it would be okay if he took those readings. And I, he wasn't, we weren't downloading that data and debriefing on it each day. He, he said, I'm not going to bother you with this. I just want to have it for my own information. But he said, if you're interested, I'll share it with you before we leave. And he did. And it was really um, what I thought was somewhat interesting. And again, very small sample size. So you can't say that this is necessarily um, true in all cases. But during the, the, the events, Friday and Saturday during the event, we had not rolled. We had only mowed. That was, we were getting the speeds that we wanted just from mowing. We didn't want to overdo it. And the data that Kim got then on Sunday morning when we mowed and rolled for the first time, um, the greens were not as smooth as they were on Friday and Saturday. Now, is that perceptible by the players? I doubt it. Um, but I think it's an example of how the more you do on the surface, there's there's a there's a, a threshold. To some extent, you need to run something over that surface to smooth it out. But there's probably a point at which you've now run too much over that surface and you're not smoothing it. You're not making it any smoother. Uh, it's just a small, very um, small sample size example that I think maybe highlights that point. Have you gotten much feedback from the blog posts? Uh, I... I think there's three of them posted now. Have people yeah. emailed and said, wow, this is a revelation or have they? Yeah. I, I haven't gotten anything uh, directly like that. Um, I'm, you know, just some minor comments on Twitter, just saying, you know, this is really good stuff. Very interesting. Um, but it does seem like the people who are reading it are finding it interesting and, and it's, it's sparking some, um, some thought. And I would expect that to be the case. If somebody doesn't agree with me, um, they're probably not going to bother reading that. Um, I would hope that they would because that's the way that I think we improve our, our thinking and our thought processes by reading stuff that is counter to what um, we are doing. But, um, you know, there's a little bit of, uh, um, I suppose, uh, bias on this. You know, people who are are kind of into this or interested in this are, are the people who are going to be reading it too. But the feedback is the the kind of minor feedback has has been good i think people find it interesting so so that's good i hope that's what i wanted when you when you took your brief break um a few moments ago i i was talking about the accumulation rate of organic matter wow. and the nitrogen application rate which really controls the growth which will control the organic matter accumulation rate and then the 
the the need or the demand for sand top dressing and the need and the demand for verticutting and mm-hmm. the need and the demand for removal of organic matter through coring or and the need to inject sand into the root zone is yep. is really linked to that and i'm not sure that as an industry that we quite realize how how much those are linked and yep. if you um, which is why I think measuring the performance of the surface as a playing surface is so valuable because if you put zero nitrogen, the grass will die, but you probably don't need to top dress it either. Like, right. so if we want to create a, if we want to create a surface that requires no verticutting, no top dressing and no coring, we could just apply no fertilizer, no water and it won't grow and then that surface doesn't require any of those practices yep. that's where clipping volume can be useful too to kind of see where you're at in terms of how much the grass is growing right but trying yep. to put all these pieces together and i'm not saying like collect data just for for the sake of doing it but if we're trying to maximize the number of days in the year with the if we're trying to have the most days in the year with the best playing conditions, we need to disrupt the surface as little as possible. That seems yep. obvious. Yep. The question is, what is, for any facility, what is the minimum disruption required? Because mm-hmm. at some point, if you, if, if you just let grass grow and you don't ever put sand, um, that especially over the top of a sand root zone, the expectation yep. is, is that it's going to turn into a spongy like surface at some point. Yep. Um, so by measuring some of these key data points and especially looking at the playability, I think you can get closer and closer year after year to achieving that. I, that that's the idea. It's, yeah. it's kind of exciting. Uh, the, uh, the potential. Well, it's, it's, I think it's, it's really, I mean, I, of course I'm sort of in the middle of this and I'm, I'm finding how, what the attitude of our members has been by just having a stretch of, you know, two months of, of not undisrupted surfaces. And I, I know how they react to that and I know how much they love it. Um, but I, I would think if, if I was, managing a golf course that it would be it would be exciting to think that i there there are ways that we can probably increase the number of days of which our golfers are going to be extremely satisfied with the product um, as opposed to um, sort of i'm going to do all this maintenance here's my maintenance schedule and and the result of it will be some number of of perfect days some other number of medium days and then some number of days in which you're there is some you know level of disruption um yeah i think we have to do some things we i think we all know that and i'm not saying this is a this is you know zero or it's um it's 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 all or nothing that's not it at all but i think it can be um much more we can tune the things that we need to do to the course in a way that will um, also 
actually make our members much more happy as opposed to saying to them, well, we're just making it better for tomorrow. You know, maybe in those two periods of, of May and August, I can say to them, I'm just, I'm doing this so that we can then go into a stretch of 60 or 70 days straight of perfect greens. And then in August I can come back and say, okay, I'm going to do this. But then following a a seven day break, we're going to have another 45 days of perfect greens before the end of the season. Um, or, Or, it would be more than that 60 70 days so you know i, I think that I, I think that should be appealing to just about anybody it yeah it certainly makes sense to me um i think it makes sense to you um and it's it just requires not doing things in the textbook way mm-hmm. and because it, if we if we say the textbook way it's it's like all these things that are supposed to be essential um, and instead just looking at what works best for your facility, which I think everybody's doing what they think is best for their facility, but actually measuring that it, it can be a bit of a revelation. Yep. Cause yep. I, yeah, like, I, I don't think anyone does any of these things with the intent of irritating golfers. There's absolutely no doubt that's that's nobody's doing that. Um, but that doesn't mean it isn't causing them some irritation and doesn't mean we shouldn't, um, you know, open our ears to, to what they're saying about uh, what we're doing. Because I, I had always been an advocate for doing more of these things because I, especially in a challenging climate, um, where everywhere has stressful times of year at, at some time of year. So I always wanted the grass to be as healthy as possible going into those stress periods to make sure that we maintain a hundred percent grass cover, which is my number one criterion for evaluating the quality of a green is. So I was always focused on, on the grass health aspect of it and having healthier grass and thinking that a lot of this stuff was essential. And then at various, uh, times over the past 15 years, I've noticed that a lot of places are not doing as much of that disruptive work as I thought was necessary. And sometimes not punching a single hole year after year after year, sometimes Mm -hmm. top dressing only once or twice a year and not punching any holes. And the surfaces just got better and better. And I had some data to show that, that the, the, and my own observations uh, and photos and so on, the conditions just kept getting better and better. And it's like, I, I can't keep making these recommendations of doing it the textbook way right. when there are these isolated cases that I'm aware of, of people not doing it the textbook way and getting great results. And now what you're doing is like, I think top dressing only a few times a year is probably non-textbook. Obviously, there's other places doing that, but uh, most places are probably top dressing more than three times a year. And um, so doing this, how can you do it safely and not be thinking that you're putting the grass at risk or putting your job at risk or putting the member's uh, satisfaction of playing on good 100% grass cover greens at risk. And I think what what you're describing in this series of blog posts seems to be a way that could be applied anywhere to figure this out for your facility to maybe safely move in the direction of optimizing conditions with minimal disturbance if that's something that that one wanted 
to pursue. Yeah. yeah, I think I think that's it. I think that would be probably most people's biggest concern is that they're going to they're going to do some kind of undue harm and they're going to, you know, OK, I do this for two or three years. And then uh, after two or three years, we're in a position where, oh, my gosh, uh, I've got some kind of um, major problem. And one, I don't think that that's going to happen because I think you're going to see some kind of decline in in um, the the numbers that you're 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 taking and some kind of decline in performance well before that becomes a major issue that you then have to try to um, you know do some kind of major work to resolve and two um, one is good enough I don't know what two is going to be so <laughs> I thought there'd be two but but one, I think, is 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 it. I just think uh, I, I I think this is a worthy endeavor, and I think if you're keeping track of what you're doing uh, on both ends, on the short term and the long term, I think you're not going to run into problems. Um, yeah. Here's here's a good uh, a good question. Jason Haynes says he airifies only to irritate golfers. That doesn't surprise me. Uh, <laughs> so. And Are then you, I, I like this one. How do old cultivars versus modern ones factor into the discussion? I have old Pencross. That's a really good question, and, and I don't know the answer. Um, when I was at Northland previous to Hazeltine, I, I wasn't necessarily thinking about turf management in this way. Our greens, the Pencross we did have, I would say, they were old cultivars, mostly, I think, Pencross. And so I know what that's like. It's kind of laying down a little bit, but that can still produce a pretty pretty great surface. Um, I don't know the answer. I, I think I think you'd have to start doing this, take collecting your own data on it, and then find out what is going to be best for um, those old cultivars. I, I might guess, a guess I would have is that if you do something to the surface of a, let's say a pencross green, like a verticut uh, or a, um, a even a brooming or something of that nature, I might guess that the, the, the impact on the ball roll is going to be more simply because of the way that that um, is is more of a leafy um, type of surface, um, laying down a little bit more, producing a little bit more grain. Um, but, it, you know, that's total speculation. All right. Uh, we're coming up on two hours of this, and we've we've gone through all the blog posts. We've I, I've asked all the questions that I had. I will ask anybody watching it live now, if you want to ask us any questions, please put those in the chat and we will, we will address those. Otherwise, Chris, what, so you can't keep doing this indefinitely. So there, there must be a plan for a few more posts and, uh, uh, and then, then you'll be uh, back to work in a long hiatus from, from blogging <laughs> probably yeah probably you know um that's the nice thing about winter is it it provides this opportunity for um you know thinking and and these long um sort of drawn out thought processes that that manifest themselves as these these blog posts um you know i'm not quite the uh i don't have quite the time on my hands that i used to have back in the northland days as we discussed uh early on in this in this chat. So I, I don't find myself doing much blogging during the course of the season. Um, so I, I think we're coming up on uh, March. And I think I'll, 
I suspect there's going to be probably two more, maybe three more posts in this series. And I'll wrap those up. And then, um, um, yeah, we'll start to get towards, uh, towards maintaining the golf course and, and seeing if those numbers um, that we looked at today on the data post can, can improve next year. I think that that will be the goal. That will be the progress that I'm looking to make in 2022 is to, to push those numbers um, into even more consistency than, than what we have in the last couple of years. Yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting. And I, I always wonder, because this kind of goes against the way that I used to manage when I was a superintendent, which was much more disruptive and much more uh, nitrogen and a much more rapid growth rate. And it goes, it's quite different than the way I used to recommend people manage. It's different than what we read about in, in the textbooks generally. Um, so I'm, I'm always quite pleased when I see that the results come out as good as they do. And I'd be interested if other people try this and get good results. I, I hope that they will share it. And if people get bad results, that's even more important to share of just like, this is, you know, uh, if I don't top dress my ultra dwarf greens on a weekly basis, for example, they, they, they fail and get more disease after three months. It's good to know that. Um, because what we're talking about is what works at, uh, Pan A, what was working on USGA sand root zone, Pan A4 greens in the Minneapolis type of climate. Yep. And, um, we're trying to describe a framework, I think of what, what might be measured in order yep. to do this, but it's not actually something of how you would manage in Miami or or Bogota or something. Right. I mean, I think it's a, it's, but it, I think it, it could be a framework of thought as to how, how might I, um, you know, implement some of this or these ideas uh, or this thinking at my own course, whatever, you know, whether I have POA in the Northwest or um, POA in the Northeast or, you know, yeah, Ultradorf Bermuda in Southern Florida um, or any other part of the world. But hopefully it stimulates some some critical thinking, I guess, on, on, in people. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Chris, for joining me. And thank you for doing these blog posts, for, for writing them. I am just, uh, I find it fascinating, this, this topic. And um, I really am so glad that you wrote about it. We've got one more <laughs> there, question that, just, come up. just when I turn on the music to close yeah, this thing exactly. out. Exactly. Yeah. So Matt uh, just recently became head greenkeeper, and there were some d- disease scars, which he treats differently to the rest. So he's solid tining every four weeks and top dressing. Yeah. I mean, I think when you need a more rapid growth rate, that uh that's a good opportunity to do that kind of work yep yeah and and you know hopefully if you if you adjust your what you're doing on those greens you and you get that full cover that we were talking about um you know hopefully eventually you get to a point where you are managing the greens um you know you can manage them all the same and um that's ultimately the goal but i think you need to be willing to adjust and do things a little bit differently if you're treating a green differently 
Jason Chenault, I, I believe, is in uh, Phnom Penh, Cambodia this evening. Where and, Where uh, is Jason? That's kind of he's. I, yeah. I, I think he's in Cambodia, and he okay. yeah he he uh, he went ahead and admitted that that was him, the the LinkedIn user. So, Jason, thank you so much for joining. It's uh, awesome to have you back in this part of the world, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing you again soon too. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for the comments, Jason. That's very kind. So, um, yeah, I think thanks everyone for joining. Um, we'll, I'll, I'll do another office hour sometime and uh, Chris will do his blog posts and we can keep this discussion going. And um, yeah, maybe maybe the end of this season, we can duplicate those charts and see what they look like this year. I think that's when it really gets interesting. Yeah, so for sure. Hope, hopefully it's good. All right, Chris, well, thank you for joining. Thanks everybody for joining this live. And if you're listening to it um, later or watching this later, I hope you found it useful and we will, um, yeah, just keep trying to share good information and and uh, have fun with Turfgrass Management and do it as good as we can. Yep, well, thank you for inviting me to the office hours, Mike. I'm glad to be here again for a second, a second chat and it's always enjoyable. Thank you. All right, everyone, wherever you are in the world, thanks for joining. Uh, good morning, good, good night, and goodbye. <laughs>